All right, well, Greg and Shelly are on vacation today. They are in Mexico, which it's like, are you kidding me? Seriously, like we're here and you get to be in Mexico. Um, but anyway, they are out there enjoying themselves, which is great. We, we just want to bless them in that and, you know, as we sit here bundling up. And um, we have a guest with us today. Now, you might remember him. His name is Nick Cunningham. He is from Ohio. He's a teaching pastor out there. And so we're really excited to have him back. So please give a warm Woodland Hills welcome to Nick. Mexico. Who want to go to Mexico and you can be here? Right? Sandy beaches, a whole bunch of snow. I'm where I want to be. I don't know about you, but I know probably a lot of you don't remember me, but I do remember you, particularly the 1130 service. Y'all the rowdy bunch, right? I like that. I like that. I'm a pastor at a church, Gingersburg Church, just north of Dayton, Ohio. It's an incredible place, but it really is an honor to be here. I thought I'd show you a picture of my family, though. But you know what I have waiting for me back home? Yeah, I know. I know, yeah. That's my wife, Lindsay. Hubba hubba, right? That's my son, Rowan. Last time I was here, he was brand new, pretty much. He's now two and a half. I have no idea who he looks like. And then the newest addition is down there in the bottom right. That's Gwen. She's a classy babe. She's 10 months old. Pray for her. She's got a bit of a stomach bug. My wife's home by herself. With all the kids. So if you would, just say a prayer for Gwen. That would be, that'd be great. But y'all, I told you this when I was here last time. It's such an honor to be here. It was incredible when I got invited the first time, but the fact that y'all asked me to come back usually never happens when I preach somewhere. But I really have, I've been following y'all for almost 10 years now, 10 years. And your pastor, Greg Boyd, has, has been a huge influential voice in my life for so long. So I want to say thank you for sharing him, you know, for allowing him to impact the, the global church, but, but I also want to say something to you as a church family. I don't think you're aware of it. You know, a lot of you come here for worship on the weekends and, you know, maybe that's it, but I, I don't think you know what you mean to people like myself, young leaders on the outside looking in. And a lot of the circles that I run in, maybe you've heard some of this too, where there's all this chatter about how the church in America is dying. Right? Or, or the church in the West is, is dying. And there, there's a lot of statistics and research that, that, that actually support that. But you know what? As a believer in a God who performs resurrections, I believe, I believe we're on the edge of a renewal movement. I really do. I believe, I believe that we're headed towards, maybe you call it a revival, right? But there's something really big about to happen in the church in, in, in the West. And I believe that you all, as a, as a community, as a church, are going to play a huge pivotal role in that. You know, if you, if you study throughout church history, these renewal movements, right, things like the Reformation or whatever, if you, if you study what, what it was that sparked these things, one, one of the big factors is there's some sort of theological rediscovery or some sort of theological correction, like some sort of crooked belief about God gets straightened out, or, or there's something that the people had forgotten about that gets picked up, dusted off, and embraced by a whole new generation, and then it just unleashes Right? But I, I believe that the theological correction that's going to spark this next renewal movement will come from this rediscovery, from the fact that the God of the universe looks like Jesus. You know, more specifically, looks like Jesus on the cross. Because I believe that that's something that we've forgotten. You know, I also believe that part of this rediscovery is going to come from, from sort of embracing the fact that the gospel, the gospel isn't just about some promised entry into a spiritual retirement home after we die. But the gospel is about the invasion of the kingdom of God, the rule, the reign of God, a whole new creation right here in the middle of this one. And the Woodland Hills, that's what y'all are about. 
You know, in so many ways, I believe that this community is a picture of what is to come. Right? And as a young leader, from the outside looking in, I just got to say, y'all give me hope. You, know, you get me really excited about the future. So thank you for that. Enough buttering you up, though. How about a sermon? You okay for that? Did y'all get your chocolate? Yeah? Let me see it. Hold it up. How many of you have eaten it already? Get out of here. I'm just kidding. I understand that a lot of you don't like chocolate. I'm going to invite you to come forward. We're going to pray for you. We're going to have a healing service. Yeah. Hold that chocolate. Don't eat it. All right? Don't eat it until I tell you to eat it. All right? Hold it in your hand. You feel that? You feel that? That's like a good mouthful of chocolate. Wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. Don't eat it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to open it up. Open it up. Take off that shiny paper, but don't eat it. Don't eat it. There's a good chance that we laced it with laxatives, okay? But Don't eat it. Just look at it. Ooh, look at that. Look at that black gold. How smooth it is. Look at that shape. Yeah, don't eat it. Quit licking your fingers. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to smell it. Smell it. Don't eat it. Just smell it. You know what they say about chocolate, right? It's an aphrodisiac. Get a little weird in here. Right? I, want you to, I want you to smell your neighbor's chocolate. Now, don't do that. That's a horrible idea. It definitely would get, get very weird. That smells good, though, right? How many of y'all mouse watering right now? Good. Here's what I want you to do, okay? I want you to take that chocolate, put it back on the wrapper, either put it in your lap or put it in the seat next to you. Don't eat it. Don't hold on to it because it'll melt. We'll have a big mess on our hands. But just put it away. Put it away for later. We'll come back to it. This morning, we're going to have a little conversation about self-control. Some of you are like, I hate this guy, right? I promise you, it'll be worth it, right? Just bear with me. It will be worth it. But here's, here's what I want to share with you. You know, Greg said I could talk to you about whatever I wanted. And so I thought I would just share with you kind of where I've been lately. I've, I've been soaking in this passage right at the beginning of 2 Peter chapter 1. For like the past two months, I just keep going back to it. I've been studying it for, for a really long time. And it's this passage that's all about what some people refer to as spiritual maturity. Now, some of us hear that word maturity and we're like, ugh. And they're like, for me, it has some baggage to it. Like, I hear the word maturity and I think of Tiffany O'Shea. It's this girl I went to elementary school with. And I can hear her voice in my head. You are so immature. When are you ever going to grow up? Right? Y'all have a Tiffany O'Shea in your life? But as I've really studied, you know, this passage and this idea of maturity, the biblical understanding of maturity isn't some snobby, elitist attitude towards life. But the type of maturity that Scripture speaks of, it's more a quality of life. It's about wholeness. It's about completeness. It's about growing into who we really are. You see, the good news of the gospel isn't just the hope that we have in life after death. And that is, that's a great hope. But also the good news of the gospel is that the reality of life before death, that right now, because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I, we can know life on the highest plane. I would would call that good news. You know, know, in so many ways, I feel like God gets gets made to seem like this cosmic Debbie Downer. Womp, womp, womp. Right? Who just loves to rain on our parade. And like, God's favorite thing to do is to point out all the ways which you and I have it wrong. You know, for a lot of people, following Jesus seems like this miserable experience. It's about denying yourself of your humanity, right? It's about denying yourself of all the things you really enjoy in life. But but nothing could be further from the truth. 
I just want to point out that a lot of times in the Gospels, Jesus got criticized for having too much fun. Do you know that? It's my kind of guy. And following Jesus, it isn't about denying ourselves of our humanity. It's an invitation to discover what true humanity actually is. See, Jesus not only shows us who God is, but Jesus shows us who you and I were created to be, who God is ultimately going to shape us into, into the likeness of Christ. And this passage here at the beginning of 2 Peter chapter 1, it's all about this idea of maturity, of growing into who we really are. And, and right in the middle of the passage, there is this list of moral virtues. And what we have to understand is that these virtues, it's not a list of what God wants from us. It's a list of what God wants for us. And it's a picture of what it looks like to take hold of the life that is truly life. And I want to encourage you, you know, after this weekend, to maybe spend some time reading through this passage, reflecting on it. But this morning, what I want us to do is just as a really zero in to focus on just one of those words. One of those words is found in that list of virtues, and it's the word self-control. Everybody say self-control. Take a look at your chocolate. How's it look? Still there. I think, I don't think it'd be very hard to get everybody in this room to admit that we could benefit from, from some more self-control in our lives. Am I right? And particularly like this time of year. Because right about now is when a lot of us start to give up on those goals, those resolutions, whatever you call them, that we made several weeks ago. Am I right? Like for me, one of my goals this year was to run 365 miles. It's a mile every day. Some of you are like, that's a piece of cake. I'm like 240 pounds. not a piece of cake. Okay? I have a thing. I hate running. But it's good for me. What is it, February 16th? I got to run like 12 miles. That's what you call a bit of a rough start when you agree. So it's like right, right about now, here's what some of us start to do. We start to adjust our goals. And I was like, well, did I really say that? You know, it's like with my schedule or for some of us young parents, I love this excuse. During this season of my life, you know, or, or with my work environment, the people I have to be around all the time, that's just not very realistic for me to think that I could actually do that. So I'm just going to adjust it. I'm going to have a little grace with myself. And then in a couple more weeks, what's going to be great is that we're going to suddenly, you know, just conveniently forgotten about all these goals, right? The gym's empty out. It's nice again in there. You got a little room to breathe. But you know what this tells me about you and I? On a much larger sense is that, that there is this distance. Maybe we can call it a maturity gap right? between our ideal and our real. What I mean is that there is this distance between who you and I, who we long to be, and who we actually are. Am I right? There, there's this distance between the kind of life that we want to live and the kind of life that we actually live. And so we all live with this, this sense of frustration. For some of us, it's more profound, right? It's more obvious than others. But I believe we all live with some sense of frustration over this maturity gap, over the fact that we are not the people that we long to be. How many of you can resonate with the words from Paul in Romans when he says, I don't understand myself. I don't do what I know I should do. But instead, I do what? I do the very thing I know I shouldn't do. How many of you all can resonate with that? Right? There's this frustration in us over this maturity gap. And so the question is, how do we turn the corner? How do we bridge that gap? How do we begin to live into the people that we long to be, the people that Jesus ultimately calls us to be? Well, this is really what self-control is all about. It's what I want us to talk about this morning. But before we get into the word, I want to spend the time in prayer because this word in particular is going to take some honesty, isn't it? It's going to take us being honest with ourselves, right, and all the various things in our lives that we know are not healthy, 
all the things in our lives that we pretend, we trick ourselves into believing that we have control over, that we have it under control, we have it managed, but we really don't. So I just want to spend some time in prayer, and I want to invite God to bring these things to the front of our minds. What what are all these ways in which we settle for less? So let's spend some time in prayer. God, thank you so much. Thank you for being with us. Lord, you were here long before we were. And if there is anybody that needs to show up right now, it's us. And for many of us, you know, we, we drag all sorts of things with us through those doors. And it's really hard to be fully, fully present with you. But I just pray that right now you do whatever you have to do in us to get us to be fully present right now with you. And I pray that you just bring to the front of our minds all the ways in which we settle for less. All those things in our lives that we try to excuse or rationalize away that we know, we know are destroying us. I pray that you bring it to the front of our minds this morning and that you deal with it. Lord, I pray that for every single one of us as we leave here this morning, we, we somehow take a step towards that ideal, towards that person that you have called us to be. Thank you for Jesus, because without him, none of this is possible. It says in his strong, resurrected name that we pray. Amen. Second Peter chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 3. Hear these words. It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Did you hear that? His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Aren't you grateful for that? This is out of God's goodness, not ours. Praise God. Verse 4. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now here's this list I was telling you about in verse 5. It says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. This is where, where maturity begins. Maturity, completeness, wholeness. It's not something that we can do on our own. It's something that God has to do in us. And as we place our trust, our faith, more and more in God's saving love. Right? Then it says, add to your faith goodness. Another translation for this would be moral excellence. And some of us know what this is about. It's like when, when we do place our trust in Jesus, when we do come to this realization of God's saving love for us, and we place our weight, our life on it, this whole new world of possibility opens up, doesn't it? Where you realize that, you know what, tomorrow doesn't have to be like yesterday. I don't have to keep making these same mistakes. I don't have to be defined by my past or where I come from. But anything is possible in Jesus Christ. That's what goodness is about. It's excellence. And goodness comes to each of us and speaks to us right where we are and says, you know what, God loves you just the way you are. But God, God also loves you enough to not leave you that way. And you're better than that. You're better than that. And then he goes on to say, add to your goodness what? Knowledge. Right? Now, this isn't just information. This isn't just head knowledge. This word speaks of a deep, intimate, experiential knowledge. Our God's alive. You knew that, right? It's the difference between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. Well, then we come to our word. Add to your knowledge self-control. Now, typically, when we hear that word self-control, we only think about it in terms of like resistance, don't we? Or abstinence. Self-control is all about saying no to things. Now, that is part of it, but the biblical understanding of self-control is a little bit more complex, a little bit more layered than that. 
In the original language, Greek, the word here is this word enkratia. And it has as its root word the word for government. And so a more literal translation would maybe be self-governance. But, but a person of self-control, somebody who is able to govern, guide, and direct their appetites and desires in a way that is healthy. See, Scripture teaches that you and I, we are integrated beings. Here's what I mean by that. We are both physical and spiritual creatures. So you, you are a physical creature in a sense. Not only do you have a body, hopefully you're aware of the fact that you have a body, but you are also physical in a sense that you have these natural appetites and desires. Like when I say that word appetite, what do you think about immediately? Food, chocolate, right? How's that chocolate looking? Now you think about food, right? I mean, we have this natural appetite for food, and it's incredibly strong. I mean, so strong, in fact, that right now I could mention a particular restaurant, Chipotle, and make you hungry, right? I mean, some of you, I've lost you for the rest of the morning because in your head, you're swimming in a pool full of Chipotle lime rice. Sounds good, right? Mm. Yeah, we, we have this natural appetite for food. It's incredibly strong. But not only do we have an appetite for food, we have an appetite for all sorts of other things, too. We have, we have the appetite for sex, right? So the appetite for food. There's the appetite for sex. There's the appetite for food. Appetite for sex. I know there's more. I just can't think of them right now. No, we have, we have all sorts of appetites. We have the appetite to be known, to be known for companionship. This is why really great friends can make just about anything a good time. Have you noticed that? It's also why I think social media is such a cultural phenomenon. It's deeply rooted in our appetite to be known for companionship. We have, we have an appetite for significance, and we all want to matter. We have an appetite for progress. We want to achieve things. We want to accomplish things. That's why, why human beings, we put, a, we put a human being on the moon. That's crazy. We have an appetite for adventure, and we love, we love new things. That's why we love traveling to new places or, or going to see a new movie at the theater. We have, a, we have an appetite for comfort, Sunday afternoon naps, need I say more, right? We have an appetite for security. And what we have to understand is that all of these appetites, they are not bad. They're innate in all of us. They are actually God-given. But these natural appetites, which are a part of our physical nature, are meant to be guided and directed by our spiritual nature. So not only are you physical, but you're spiritual as well. And some of us, when we hear that word, we get all creeped out, don't we? Spiritual, ooh, it just seems kind of spooky. I don't think it needs to creep us out. See, our spiritual life, it's that place where our hopes and our dreams come from. It's that place where we ask those why questions from. Some are like, if that's the case, my five-year-old's really spiritual. Why, 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 why? We we are deeply spiritual creatures. That's why we can engage in some of these, these physical appetites and not only enjoy them in a physical sense, but be moved by them in a spiritual sense. There's some movies, they're not just fun to watch, but they, we walk out of the movie theater asking all sorts of questions about our own life. My wife and I, the other night, that movie Pursuit of Happiness was on TV. Man, that's a good movie. First time I've ever, watched, I've ever seen that movie. Not only was it, was it a great movie to watch, but man, afterwards we sat on the couch for like an hour and talked about our life. All the ways it just disrupted us and it challenged us. It's because we're spiritual. You know, or, or it's why a really great conversation with a good friend, not only do you enjoy it, but it, it, it refreshes you, doesn't it? It can empower you in this really weird way. It's because not only are we physical, but we're spiritual. And now, where these two natures are distinct, they're not the same thing, but they're also not separate. But they're integrated. And they're meant to exist in a particular order. And this, this idea of this relationship between our physical and spiritual is all over the place in Scripture. But one of my favorite pictures that we're given of how it's supposed to work, it comes right at the beginning of the Bible. 
In Genesis chapter 2, when God creates the first human beings, it says that God actually molded the human body out of the dust of the earth, molded this body, and then breathed the breath of life or the spirit into the body, and it became a living being. You see, it is the spiritual that gives life, that animates the physical. The philosopher Dallas Willard says this about spirituality. So spirituality is simply the holistic quality of the human life as it was meant to be, at the center of which is our relation to God. See, is our spiritual life, namely our relationship to God, that is meant to guide, direct, and govern our natural, physical appetites. Now, where you and I get into trouble is when that order gets messed up and when our appetites start calling the shots. See, this is exactly why we have this maturity gap, why there's this distance between our ideal and our real. It's because our appetites, in so many ways, call the shots. And so self-control is about learning to realign that order, that, that, that relationship between our physical and our spiritual. And so the next question we ask is, well, how do you do that? How do we grow in self-control. Let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 1. I told you from the beginning that self-control isn't just about resistance, but it most certainly starts there. It starts with resistance. Right there at the end of verse 4, the author speaks about escaping the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Some translations use the word lust. Everybody say lust. It's a big word. And it is the enemy of self-control. I mean, typically when we think of lust, we only think of like sexual you know, desires, but that's part of it, but it's way bigger. I mean, lust is essentially whenever this order between our physical and spiritual, whenever that gets mixed up, that's lust. I would define it like this. Lust is whenever we look to one of these physical appetites to satisfy a deeper spiritual need. Lust is whenever we look to one of these physical appetites to satisfy a deeper spiritual need. Remember, our spiritual life is the one that's supposed to call the shots. And we are created to find all of our worth, our identity, our value, our meaning, our purpose, all of those why questions, the answer is found in God. But lust is whenever we look, whenever we substitute one of these physical appetites, we substitute it in place of God. It's called lust. And it's not, it's not hard to point out how this shows up in our life. It's like when our appetite for food gets elevated to an unhealthy place, then the refrigerator becomes our place of worship. Man, it's that place we laugh, but it's true. It's that place we go to whenever we're feeling rejected, empty, right? It's that place that we go to when we try to fill that void, right? Or, or when our natural appetite for to be known gets elevated to an unhealthy place, it can lead us in all sorts of destructive places. It's like some of us, we just talk too much. I'm serious. We dominate every single conversation. And if we were to pay attention, you're all laughing because you know somebody you're thinking about. But there are those people who, who never really listen to anybody. They just wait for their turn to talk. But this is, this is rooted, I believe, in, in when, when this sort of natural appetite to be known gets elevated to an unhealthy place. The sad thing is it destroys the very thing that they're looking for, relationships, right? Or, or how about when our natural appetite for, for significance, when that gets elevated to an unhealthy place? Then you and I try and find our self-worth from comparing ourselves to other people. Right? Or, or we try to find our self-worth from how much we're able to accomplish or achieve and how other people treat us has way too much say over how we feel about ourselves. It's called high school. Right? <laughs> and newsflash, we never really get out of high school, do we? No. We still deal with these same things. Right? Or in our natural appetite for security, when that gets elevated to an unhealthy place, then guess what that leads to? Things like anxiety, worry, those things that keep you up at night. 
because you're, you're just humming, right? You ever been there before? Or when our natural appetite for comfort, when that gets elevated to an unhealthy place, it leads to things like apathy and indifference. You know, where all of our energy, and, and, and God has given us an incredible energy and power and ability. A human being is an incredible thing. But when this appetite for comfort gets elevated to such an unhealthy place, then all of that energy, all of that ability gets directed at things that don't matter. Like organizing your Pinterest account, or, or managing your fantasy football team, or saving for retirement. Barf. <laughs> but do, do you see how this works? Man, it's like we, we have these natural God-given appetites, and they're not bad. But when they get elevated, when they trump our spiritual life, it leaves this thing called lust. And what is the author? What's the author of Second Peter's word to us regarding lust? What is it? Escape. Flee. Run for your life. Like the picture I have in my head of this word is all those people running away from Godzilla in those cheesy 80s movies. Right? Run, run, get out of there, escape, flee, do whatever you have to do. Because here's what we have to understand is that lust, lust is dangerous. It's dangerous. I mean, for one, it's deceptive. Here's what I mean by that. Lust is built on a lie. Lust whispers all these promises to us in our ears and they're promises that it, that it can't keep. It can't live up to them. In fact, psychologists, when they study the brain, they have found that whenever one of these appetites is really inflamed... Right? Whenever it's sort of elevated to this unhealthy place, there's this thing that happens. They call it impact bias. And basically, your brain releases these chemicals, and it lies to you. It tells you that whatever you're about to do, it's going to feel this good. When in reality, it's probably only going to feel like this good. So that's why whenever we do indulge in one of these lusts, how do we feel afterwards? There's this letdown, right? It's like several months ago, I was convinced I had to have the new iPhone I got to get the iPhone. God, it's a new iPhone. How could you not have the new one? Like, I know I have this one, but there's a new one. I got to have it. And for weeks, I was just like, you know, trying to trip my wife into convincing her why we needed the new phone, right? So finally she gave in. We went and got the new phone. It only took me like an hour to realize it's the same phone I had, just with a little nicer camera, right? But, but there's this letdown. That's why Christmas morning's great. Christmas night is, hmm. There's a letdown there. It's because, listen, lust is built on a lie. It's deceptive. That's why, hear me when I say this, that's why when we do eat the whole box or when we do go to the computer screen at night when everybody else is asleep, when we do tell that lie, when we do take that hit, when we do finally get our hands on that thing that we think we have to have, yeah, sure, it feels good for a moment. But then it's only a matter of time before we're left feeling hungrier, emptier, and lonelier than we were before. It's because lust is built on a lie. We see this from the very beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. What's the lie from the serpent? You're missing something. God's holding out on you. We know where that got him, right? We've been buying into the same lie ever since. But not only is lust deceptive, we need to hear this too. Lust is destructive. It always costs us something. And usually what lust does is lust gets us to indulge in the immediate at the expense of what's really important. Something else your brain does whenever one of these appetites is really highly inflamed, they call it focalism. This is when your brain has this unbelievable ability to focus in on whatever it is you've convinced yourself that you want, and everything else kind of gets blurred out around it. Like when those Olive Garden commercials come on, and then like everything your wife or your spouse says about food, you hear Olive Garden. You know, it's like, hey, you want, you want some you know, cheese sandwiches? You want grilled cheese and soup? Would you say Olive Garden? Olive Garden sounds good. 
right? Oh, you just think Olive Garden. Or it's like, why some of us guys, you know, when we think back to high school, we can remember this particular girl in our algebra class, like where she sat, what her name was, some outfits that she wore. We couldn't tell you anything about algebra, right? It's focalism. It's what happens in your brain. It gets you zeroed in on this thing that you think you want. And everything else that gets blurred, gets blurred out. But here's the dangerous thing. Typically, what we're blinded to is what you and I are going to have to sacrifice, what we're going to have to give up in order to indulge in that lust. But man, lust always costs us something. Always. There's a story about Jacob and Esau, these two brothers in Genesis, the book of Genesis. Esau's the older brother, right? And his younger brother actually talks him into selling him his birthright, which was worth a fortune for a bowl of soup because he's hungry. But we do the same thing. We do the exact same thing. It's like that affair that you're thinking about having right now. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you the respect of your children, and it's probably going to cost you your relationship with your grandkids. Or it's like that shortcut you're thinking about taking. It might, it might save you some money, but it's going to cost you your integrity. That lie that you're going to tell, sure, it might get you off the hook, but it's going to cost you trust with the people that you love. That false sense of intimacy you get from the computer screen is going to cost you true intimacy somewhere down the road. How many, how many addicts walk away from everybody that loves them for the sake of addiction so they can get high? See, lust always costs us something. Like my wife and I were having one of those honest conversations the other day. Those are tough. <laughs> I'm sure you can't relate to this at all, but... We get into the bad habit at night of like getting glued to our screens, like either our cell phones or our computer screens or whatever. And so you have like the blue face, you know what I'm talking about? Just going, your face is blue, right? But that costs us something. We begin to recognize that it costs us intimacy with each other. But at the same time, it costs us being fully present with our kids. And man, they grow up fast. But do you see what I'm saying? Lust is destructive. It always cost us something. And what is the author of Second Peter's word to us regarding lust? It's not just, oh, just hang out. It'll be cool. No, it's run away. Flee. Escape. Do whatever you have to do to get that thing out of your life. Here's the reality. What some of us need this morning more than anything is a wake-up call. There's this, this thing in our life, this bad habit, this destructive pattern. We think we can manage it. You can't manage it. You cannot manage it. The first step in recovery, you talk to addicts, first step in recovery is admitting that you have a problem, that whatever it is in your life that's, that you think you can manage, you can't manage it. Often we live in denial. But there are these things in our lives that are destructive and they're going to take us out. Here, here's something I need to tell you, that sin, that ugly three-letter word, it's not our friend. It's not our friend. It doesn't just want to make us feel good or have fun. It wants to take you out. It wants to take, and it will. It Will, it's only a matter of time. It'll take its time if it has to. It'll lull you to sleep, but it will take you out. And if we're honest, one of the reasons why you and I struggle with a lot of the same things, you know why? It's because we want to. We want to. The first time is a mistake. The second time is a choice. And we're not willing to do whatever it takes to get that person, that thing, that place, that substance out of our life we don't, we're not willing to do whatever it takes to totally remove it because we want to leave a little bit of room just in case we want to go back. But man, it will take you out. If we're ever going to grow in maturity, if we're ever going to realize our ideal, who we could be, who Jesus has called us to be, then we're going to have to do whatever it takes to get that thing out of our life. And that always, always begins with confession. And I'm not just talking about between you and God because sometimes we use that as a cop-out. 
because we can still keep it covered. I'm talking about confession between you and somebody else, somebody you trust, right? Somebody that you are in relationship with. Because often, if we just leave it buried, guess what? It's going to come back, right? The first step in really breaking its hold over us is getting it out in the open, bringing it to light. How y'all doing? You want to go home yet? Probably not coming back again, am I? How about that chocolate? Let's look at the chocolate. Take a chocolate break real quick. Look at it. Pick it up. Smell it again. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. Smells good, right? Here's where I want to go next. Self-control, it begins with resistance, right? Escape, flee. But it can't stay there. That's just the first step. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 1 with me. Right there in the middle of verse 4, look what it says. I love this. So that you may, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Speaking about participation in the divine nature. You see, Jesus doesn't just call us away from something. Jesus invites us into something else. Does that make sense? Self-control, it can't just stay at resistance. It's got to move into what I call redirection. Bad habits aren't just broken. They're replaced with good ones. Does that make sense? Look, look back at Ephesians. There's a real interesting passage in Ephesians chapter 4 that I think taps into this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says this. Those who have been stealing must steal no longer. Pretty straightforward, right? If you've been stealing, stop. Stop. Then it goes on to say this. But they must work doing something useful with their own hands. What do you use to steal? Like, What do you steal with? Your hands, Right? So the author is saying, okay, stop stealing with your hands and now use those very things to do something productive. Then it goes on to say, so that they have something to share with those in need. Do you see the movement here? It's this movement from resistance. Okay, stop stealing with your hands. And now what I want you to do instead is redirection. I want you to learn something useful with those hands to do something that can actually help other people. Right? It's this movement from resistance to redirection, the same energy that you poured into taking things for yourself, I want you to harness that energy and I want you to use it to bless other people. That's self-control. That's self-control. Because the author knows, like all of us know, that simple resistance by itself never works. It never works. I mean, how many of us, when somebody tells us not to do something, do we ever feel compelled to not do it? Especially if it's something that we enjoy doing. I see this with my two-year-old son all the time now. It's like the minute I tell him not to do something, it's like he just has to do it. He has to. You know, it's like the other day I was making him lunch. And I just finished, you know, using the stove. And I was over at the sink, you know, washing dishes. And I noticed him out of the corner of my eye getting really close to that stove. Really close to that stove. And he started reaching his hand up. I said, Rowan, don't touch the stove. Well, guess what he did? He touched the stove. It wasn't that hot, so it didn't burn him that bad. And maybe I laughed at him, but... But it's funny, it's like, it's like he gets into this trance. Because here's the reality, resistance by itself never works. I mean, if all of our attention and our energy is just spent on trying to resist this thing, where are we still focused? On that thing, right? See, bad habits, it's not just about breaking them, it's about replacing them, right? And I would say that this is why often we struggle with self-control. It's because we're really good at the first part. We can, we can tell you right away, what is that thing in my life I need to stop doing? But we rarely take the next step in identifying, well, what do I need to start doing instead? What does it look like to move in the opposite direction? So it's not just about resisting the affair. It's about investing in your marriage. Right? It's not just about saying no to bad food. It's about investing in, in health and wholeness in every physical way 
possible. It's not just about trying to, to stop using your mouth to tear other people down. It's about being intentional about using your mouth to build other people up. It isn't just about resisting that urge to accumulate more and more stuff. It's about using your resources and your energy to bless other people. Are you with me? It's this positive movement in the gospel that transforms us into new creations. Bad habits aren't just simply broken, they're replaced. Because remember, all of these appetites, they're not inherently evil. right? They're God-given. But if they aren't pointed in the right direction, they can lead us into all sorts of destructive ways. And so self-control is about doing the hard work of asking that question. What is this really about? Why do I keep going back to that person? Why do I keep doing that same thing? What is this really about? What do I really want? And then figuring out how to harness that and point it in a healthy direction. Like for me, I know we're just sort of getting to know each other, but I love food. I love food. I love it. Love it. Love it. Anybody with me? Come on. I live like two blocks from a Dairy Queen. And that's my jam. Blizzard. Take an M&M cookie dough blizzard. Mix it up. Give me two of them. Right? I mean, I love, I love food. It's always been a struggle for me growing up. Food. And I know, I've recognized, uh, this year, you know, I, I start off every year, we're going to lose weight. 30 is going to be the year you get in the best shape of your life. Right. But what I've had to do is just take a step back. Wait, wait, what is this really about? Like, what am I trying to substitute here for with food? You know, what, what do I really, really want? Because what I've recognized, self-control is not about getting rid of your desires, it's about giving yourself to greater desires. Things that you want more. Right? And so I've had to do the hard work, some serious soul-searching. Why do I go to Dairy Queen? You know, what, what is that really about? You know, you know what I've identified? What I really want is intimacy with God. That's what I really want because I have all sorts of head knowledge. I could tell you everything you want to know about Scripture. I study it, read it all the time. But what I really want is intimacy with God. And often when I'm feeling that sort of ping, well, I'll just go eat something. You think it's funny, but it's what I do. For some of you, you, you go back to a particular person that you know is not healthy for you. Some of you, you know what you do? You lash out at people. Some of you go buy stuff. But what we really want is we want intimacy with God. So this year I've made a commitment. I'm going to bring fasting into my life as more of a regular rhythm. Fasting. It's really powerful for me because in those times when I'm hungry, I remind myself, you know what you really want? You really want to be intimate with God. And what I've discovered is that for me, fasting is really about feasting. It's feasting on what matters on what's really, really important. I I don't know what this looks like for you. But self-control, those those destructive things you're doing in your life, it isn't about simply resisting them. It's about replacing them. It's about redirecting them towards something that's healthy. Can you handle one more thing? I want to say one more thing to you. Simply this. You ready? That chocolate's still there. Don't worry. I just want to finish with this. You can do this. You can do this. You can. You can do it. And here's, here's how I know. Here's how I know. It's because of how this passage begins. This passage begins by telling us this. His divine power has given us everything we need. Do you believe that? Because that's some power. That's some power. Elsewhere in Scripture, it says it like this in Romans chapter 8. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit that's at work in you. Man, when you said yes to Jesus Christ, the same life-giving power that defeated the grave is the same power that began to work in you. My question is, what if we live with an awareness of that power? 
And what if we lived into that spirit? What would happen? I mean, what if every time you found yourself tempted to go back to that thing, to go back to that person, to get caught up in the same old song and dance, what if you stopped? He said, I don't have to do this. Because the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that's at work in me. I think things would start to change. Wouldn't you agree? Pick up that chocolate. Come on. Pick it up. Pick up that chocolate. Here's what I want you to do with it. I want you to eat it. (laughs) Eat it. Pop that baby in your mouth. Here's what I want you to do. Pay attention to the details. Pay attention to how good it tastes. Pay attention to every single detail. And I want you to thank God for every last one of them. Because that's ultimately what self-control is all about. It isn't about denying ourselves of what it means to be a human being. It's not about denying ourselves of all these pleasures in life. It's about enjoying them for what they truly are. Not artificial substitutes for God, but good gifts from God. Gifts to be managed, gifts to be embraced, gifts to be enjoyed. Amen? I want to invite the prayer Pastors up, there can be people up here available for you if you feel like you need to pray about something. But I'd love to just close us in a time of prayer. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that in you we have victory. In you we have hope, not, not just for what happens after we die, but, but, but for what can happen right now. That in you, Jesus, we can know freedom. We can know wholeness. We can know salvation here and now. And so I pray for those, those of us in this room who have given up. I pray that you give us a new picture for who we could be. Give us the strength to believe it and the courage to go after it. And Lord, I just pray that you set us free from everything that holds us back. Because on that cross, you dealt with it. You dealt with it. We need you, Jesus. We need you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me back. Next time I come, I'll bring a king-size snicker bar for you, all right?